I guess I should ask if Juan Carlos is ready, but, you know, whatever. He's always, He's always ready. ready. He's always ready. Hello, everyone. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is Tuesday. Tuesday means one show, one topic. We are talking about recessions. Number one, spoiler alert, as I said yesterday, we are not in one, but maybe it's coming. But that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, that extra long maybe. (laughs) Uh, Because despite the inverted yield curve and warnings from the IMF and some economists that recession is just right around the corner, obviously other people, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, say that we are not. And there are other signs pointing in a different direction. So today we're going to dive into that recession debate. Here to make us smart is Todd Noop. He's a professor of economics at Cornell College, where he teaches a course on the history of recessions. Also, he writes books, the latest of which is Business Cycle Economics, Understanding Recessions and Depressions from Boom to Bust. Todd, welcome to the program. It's good to have you on. It's great to be on. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I I can't decide where to start. Let's start with um, uh, we're not in a recession now, question mark. (laughs) Well, um, First off, you might have heard this old joke that uh, a recession is when your neighbor loses their job and a depression is when you lose your job. So (laughs) and and I I like that joke, not because it's funny, because it's not. But I mean, it does kind of highlight this idea that recessions are very subjective. Um, You know, if you open up an economics textbook, they'll tell you, well, a recession is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. But I don't think that's how the public thinks about a recession, and that's really not even how economists think about recessions. Um, you know, I, I, recessions are multifaceted, and so there's a lot of data that's coming in. A lot of it is contradictory. Um, I think the other reason that joke is interesting, though, is it really does point to a truism about recessions, which is a lot of this is psychological, right? It's a lot about what you think yeah. is going on, not necessarily what is going on. Hmm. Say more about that, because when we talk about recessions, we're talking about a defined economic term that means something. There are eight economists over at the National Bureau of Economics that get to declare when there is a recession. And yet it does seem to matter so much about how people feel. Very much. And that's why it's not surprising that Janet Yellen would come out and say, oh, we're not in a recession. (laughs) Because... The more people who think we're in a recession, the more likely it is that we will be in a recession as cha- people change their, their consumption behavior and, and other be- economic behaviors. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not surprising that our Treasury Secretary is trying to sell us uh, and trying to make us be optimistic. But, but you, you talked about the members of the NBR dating committee, right, the committee that kind of officially determines when we have a recession. I mean, they look at all sorts of different sorts of economic data. And when they actually make the determination, if you actually look at past historical episodes, they've actually decided that we've had a recession and called it a recession after the recession was over. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in real time, it is very, very difficult to determine whether you're in a recession because there is oftentimes a lot of contradictory information. And we just saw that in the last GDP report out last week, right? Where there, you know, in, in many ways, um, the overall, uh, the big picture outcome of that report was very positive. But if you looked at the details, there were some more concerning items in that. Well, so keep going on that for a second, because can you lay out the roadmap for me by which we get to a recession 
in the next year, give or take, um, when right now the economy is growing at 2.6% on an annualized basis, the job market is still crazy hot, uh, and consumers are still spending money? I think I can. <laughs> Though, of course, always reluctant to talk about the future because, yeah. you know, no, I get it. Um, economists are, are not that great at, at predicting the future. But I, I think, you know, one obvious thing that's going to happen here is that if you looked at last week's GDP report, a lot of the positive evidence came from our international trade figures. Exports were strong, imports had weakened a little bit. But with the dramatic rise in the dollar here over the last six months, that just doesn't seem very likely to continue. Hmm. And on the consumer spending side, well, that was down slightly um, last quarter as the Fed continues to increase interest rates. Um, you know, I think we can, you could, you know, plausibly foresee a, a situation where consumer spending goes to zero or even begins hmm. to fall. And that, Given the importance of consumer spending, that's almost certainly would trigger a recession. Hmm. What's the other side of that? What are the arguments and the data that make you think that maybe not, maybe we are going to get that magical soft landing? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think one thing is that we just, we really never do know, right? And there, there is... We, we have an evolutionary economy. I think that's one thing that is often easy to forget about, right? Is that the structure of the economy fundamentally changes over time. And so will rising interest rates necessarily depress consumer spending like it has in the past? Not necessarily, right? I mean, I think people's relationship with finance has changed. And you know, people can borrow money in a lot different ways than going to a bank. And so that's just one of any number of potential structural changes in the economy. That means that this recession, this you know, kind of, if, if we have a stagflation recession, right, a recession accompanied with high inflation, could very well play itself out in a completely different way than it, compl it played itself out in the 1970s. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the 1970s because, of course, that's the, the paralyzing factor for the Federal Reserve today, right, is, is the fear uh, of making the mistakes that Volcker made in the late 70s and early 80s where he backed off on his interest rate increases for a little while and inflation kept roaring ahead. And now you've got Powell and everybody else on the Fed saying, hell no, we're not taking our foot off uh, the, the interest rate pedal, if you will. Um, that said, there are some deflationary things coming on the horizon, right? Housing is, is arguably already in a recession. Do you think, and here comes the opinion part of the program, do you think the Fed ought to take a little beat here and, and take a pause or maybe go half a percentage point instead of three quarters of a percentage point? I, there's good argument on either side of this. I, I know that there is, within the economics profession, there's an increasing worry that the Fed is, is kind of over-responding. Right. And, you know, that that always is a danger in policy is that you, you know, you fight the last war instead mm -hmm. of this mm -hmm. war. Right. Um, I think one of the reasons why people worry that the Fed is moving too fast is that if you actually look at the data, like what has been driving this inflationary environment, um, a relatively small part of it has been monetary policy. Right. Um, supply mm -hmm. shocks continue to be the biggest factor in why inflation is going up. Um, Next to that, it's kind of the lingering effects of all the stimulus associated with COVID. And so 
right. I think I think among economists, there is a real question about why the Fed or should the Fed be responding so aggressively with monetary policy when some of these other factors are are un, inevitably going to level out here, or at least at least in terms of fiscal stimulus, we know they're going to level out. And you know, there's some hope that the supply side of this will level out um, too, given a little bit of time. Hmm. Folks are rightfully fearful of an economic recession because it can mean bad news for a whole lot of people. But are recessions just a normal part of the business cycle that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so scared of? Yeah. Um, Well, you know, first off, calling them business cycles, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer because that gives it gives the impression that these are regular kind of like waves that they all look the same. And one of the things that we see is that really recessions, you know, come not not regularly, but there's different um, lags between them. That we have bad recessions, that we have um, recessions that are not so bad. Um, economists have talked, you know, there's some economists have talked about, the, you know, the power of creative destruction. How recessions, to some extent, are a way for um, industries to restructure and for people. Um, who might lose their jobs to get retrained and and find new jobs. But all of that said, recessions are very costly. And they're not just costly in terms of lost income, but they're they're cost they're costly in terms of the social impacts, right? In terms of, mm-hmm. you know, we, we usually see, you know, things like life expectancy often declines or um, during recessions. We've certainly seen that um, during the COVID recession. Um, you see things like divorce rates go up. Um, you know, crime and violence. And so, no, I, I, I don't want to discount the, the, the dangers or the, the costs of recessions. They are real. They are real. Even if they're transitory, they're real. Oh, there's that word, transitory. Um, <laughs> I thought that, I thought that, that I had been say, banished be from economic <laughs> discourse. I thought that was, you are now persona non grata. But, um, sorry. So, yeah, that's all right. So, so look, just just one one more from me on this, and, it, and it's it, uh, it could prove to be a little delicate, depending on how you want to answer it. Um, how worried are you about the political management of the American economy? Everything from the pressure that Powell and the Fed are now getting from progressives and Democrats to ease off on the rate hike so as to protect the job market, Um, the specter of Republicans taking over and playing fast and loose with the debt limit and um, and the full faith and credit of the United States. Where's your what's your concern over the politics of the American economy factor here? Pretty high. Hmm. Honestly, it's it's pretty high. Um, you know, traditionally, one of the reasons why we've seen fewer recessions and more moderate recessions over the last 70 years is because stabilization policy, meaning particularly monetary policy, but to, to some extent fiscal policy, has worked, right? That when the economy slows down, um, we've been able to use expansionary monetary policy, cutting interest rates, um, running bigger deficits and spending more and cutting taxes to try to stimulate the economy. But it does definitely feel like we're moving into a situation where the end goal is not necessarily macroeconomic stability. It's trying to mess up the other side, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I do worry about that, right? I, I worry that, um, you know, you'd mentioned Republicans in Congress not necessarily worried about recession, but more worried about um, trying to achieve more longer-term fiscal 
um, objectives. Um, and then, of course, very much worried about the Fed, who you know is one of the few political institutions in which, to my mind, actually has been working well the last few years. Um, Powell continues to be kind of widely respected and um, have friends on both sides of the aisle, but you do have to worry, right? How long will that continue? As you mentioned, there's, there's pressure from the left. There almost assuredly is gonna be pressure from the right. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a, a move to audit the Fed, mm-hmm. right? Which was in, in some sense a, a um, clandestine move to try to regulate the Fed and, and to have a more active voice in what the Fed does and to reduce the Fed's independence. Um, I do worry that that's gonna become, that's gonna come up on the agenda. Um, depending upon who runs Congress here. Hmm. Todd Noop is professor of economics at Cornell College. Uh, he writes books, too, most recently, Business Cycle Economics, Understanding Recessions and Depressions from Boom to Bust. Professor, thanks for your time, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you. I hope to talk about something more optimistic <laughs> next time. <laughs> well, as, as soon as we've got an economically optimistic moment, we'll give you a call, and then we'll take it from there. How about that? That would be welcome. Oh, man. Take care. All right. Bye. Uh, yeah. This always gets at like what our job is as business and economics journalists because we want to give people information about the potential recession and where the risks are in the economy but we also know from the research that us talking about it yeah can freak people out even more potentially triggering said recession yep absolutely absolutely true absolutely true Mm. i think about that all the time actually all the time uh, let us know, would you, what you think about, uh, not necessarily all the time, just every now and then is fine. 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. Those are all letters. U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Or you can email us at makemesmartatmarketplace.org. And we'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay, time for the news fix. You want to go first? Yeah, I will, just because it's of a piece with what we were talking about with Professor Noop, and it's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit dorky, but uh, I just want to make sure we people have this on, on the their show. radars. Yes. So the Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Open Market Committee, rather, is meeting today and tomorrow. There will be a press conference uh, at eleven thirty LA time. 
in which Chair Powell will read a statement and then he will take questions. And I just want to make sure that everybody understands how to listen to this or, or read it if you're going to read it later. So it's, it's almost certain that the Fed's going to raise 75 basis points, which is to say three quarters of one percentage point, right? And that'll be the fourth Jimungo supersized rate hike in a row. The thing that's really important that people need to pay attention to is the language that the Fed uses, both in its statement and in what Powell says uh, as he's freelancing on the on the questions that he gets. Right. I mean, he's got a briefing book and he is leaning more on the briefing book in recent meetings than he has been in the past. But to some extent, it's off the top of his head. Listen for a clue as to what they're going to do in their December meeting. This would be the pivot. Right. This would be the moment that the Fed says, you know what? Maybe four times 75 basis points, four times three quarters of a percentage point is enough, and we should reduce the rate of um, interest rate increases. So pay attention to what he's saying and the words he's using, and and then listen to Marketplace tomorrow, too, because we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. My news fix is also related to something Professor Noop was talking about, which is those supply shocks that have contributed so much to uh, inflation. And yes, I know that um, there's a bunch of economists and the president and uh, many members Mm -hmm. of Congress who are arguing that it's corporate profits that are driving a lot of this inflation rather than just solely these supply shocks. I mean, just Biden was bashing the oil industry for that just the other day. However, there are real supply chain issues that we still have um, lingering. Some, you know, due to the, you know, lingering effects of the pandemic, others due to the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine, Russia's attacks and ongoing, damage that infrastructure mm-hmm. and what that the sanctions are doing to global uh, supplies there, but also climate change and the weather are all in really bad situations. And, you know, I just got back from St. Louis a little bit ago and I went to go, I went to Alton, Illinois from St. Louis for my grandma's 95th birthday, oh, which meant I had to cross the river and I grew up crossing the river, crossing the Mississippi River to go from St. Louis Mm -hmm. to Alton, St. Louis to Alton. And oh my goodness, I have never seen the river look like that. Oh, It's so low. It's so low, Kai. Hmm. And I know we were talking about it the other day, but I saw it. It's bad. And, you know, I was, I've got a link here uh, that'll be in the show notes where um, CNN has some drone footage on, um, looking at the river and you know it's called the mighty mississippi Mm. for a reason this is a big powerful deep river main artery of commerce in this country and it's so low and you can just see all of these sandbars all of the silt you know sort of the army corps of engineers is dredging nonstop, and so Mm. that is going to continue to be one of those um you know supply Mm -hmm, shocks mm -hmm. Another thing I noticed when I was in St. Louis was how much more expensive diesel fuel was from regular unleaded. In St. Louis, in some places, gas is down below $3 a gallon there. 
but the diesel fuel is so much more expensive. And usually there's a little gap between unleaded and diesel, but there's a huge gap right now. And I was looking into it and sure enough, it looks like we are on our way to a diesel shortage, which has mm -hmm. been sort of huh. building up since the start of the pandemic, but is about to get much worse. I'm looking at this Business Insider piece. The Energy Information Administration has said that the U.S. only has 25 days left of diesel reserves, and that was two weeks ago. Stockpiles are hovering below marks not seen since 2008. And one of the interesting things they point out in this article is the reason we're having these diesel shortages is, yes, because of the war in, in Ukraine, but also because during the pandemic, the demand for diesel fuel never really dropped off or didn't drop off as much as the demand for regular unleaded, right? Because mm -hmm. people were still buying things, trucks were still moving, and the ships that could get through were getting through, burning diesel fuel. But then as other, as you know, these, ref and so they cut back on refining capacity because of the drop in demand in unleaded, which eventually meant just lower overall refining capacity overall. Now, because there is more demand for unleaded, it yeah. just tightens that supply even more. So anyway, super mm. interesting, but those supply uh, shocks are yeah. ongoing. Yeah, they're not going away for sure. Yeah. All right, that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, our first voice memo is about the last deep dive we did on the future of telemedicine. Hi, I'm Ricky from Austin, Texas. I'm a disabled veteran, and I get all of my health care from the VA clinic. And the VA has been using telehealth for years. They do their VA Video Connect app, which also can just work on the website, or they do some telephone appointments, but only the general practitioners are allowed to do that. Hmm. Uh, something else I've noticed about the VA is being a federal healthcare system, I have doctors and nurse practitioners licensed in all sorts of different states. So I'm just fortunate to have been practicing telehealth for years, and I continue using telehealth, and if I can go to the local clinic, I do go to the local clinic. It is two and a half miles from my office. All right. Thanks, everybody, for making me smart. Yeah, it's a good note, Ricky. It's a good note. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we are going to leave you as we usually do with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This is Megan from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Megan. I was listening to the episode where Kimberly and Kai were talking about habits and I used to think that if you didn't do them 100% of the time, you just were never going to be able to build a new habit. But I learned when I was potty training my kids that you don't have to be as rigorously consistent as I thought because even if you make the attempt, eventually you get to the point where you've got a new habit or a potty trained toddler. So anyway, have hope, Kimberly. Hope you guys are having a great day. Thanks for making this smart. Wow. That was, that was quite the turn from potty training to, hey, Kimberly, hang in there, babe. <laughs> All sorts of jokes to be oh, made there. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Goodness. Hopefully I will uh, yes. 
She's talking about my hope in, in getting more consistent about oh, writing for oh, fun. Oh, <laughs> you know? oh, Just for anybody goodness. who didn't hear that episode. There Not that go. I'm having issues mm. with potty training. <laughs> uh, moving right along. Oh, boy. Moving right along. Don't forget to send us your answer, would you, to the Make Me Smart question. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is how you can do that if you want to spell it. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Charlton Thorpe. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer, nominally anyway, is Bridget Bonder. I don't know what she's doing now. No, that's not <laughs> Donna Tam. I know. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. We love you, Bridget. We love you, even though you're blowing us off. <laughs> Look, I just, it's just it's how I feel. That's all. That's all I got. It's how I feel. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine, I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist, and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.